Good morning. Good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts chapter 11, where in just a moment I'm going to read a passage of scripture that will be the basis for today's message. Uh, Pastor Kevin has asked me to do uh, two other brief things just before I preach, and one of those is to say a personal word about my coming back to Abilene today, and the other one is to say just a word about Golden Gate Seminary, where I serve as president. Uh, First of all, I grew up here in Abilene. In fact, even closer than that, I grew up just up the street on Poplar, uh, just uh, south of uh, 20th, and lived there in the second, third, and fourth grade and went to Bowie Elementary School. Am I speaking about uh, anything here that connects with anybody? Okay. And so I uh, grew up here. I became a Christian when I was 13 years old when Elmcrest Baptist Church had a booth at the West Texas Regional Fair. Uh, I came to Christ through that fair booth and for the next 10 years was mentored in that church. Uh, I left Abilene in 1982, uh, went to become a pastor in Missouri, and then in 1989 moved to Portland, Oregon to plant a church which was to be the church of my dreams. Uh, Today it is the church of my dreams. It's the largest Southern Baptist church in the state of Oregon. Unfortunately, I am not the pastor. (laughs) Instead, uh, at a point in time, God moved me on to leadership in our denomination and then into leadership at Golden Gate Seminary, where I've been the president now for 10 years. I tell you that story because I want to challenge you as a church that there's a little boy running around Abilene right now who's in about the fifth or sixth grade who does not yet have a personal relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Reach that child for Christ because you do not know the impact of a life that you can shape as a church. When you look at these little guys, you think, will they ever turn out to be anything but hoodlums and rascals? Well, some of them might turn out to be seminary presidents. Not much difference, I know, but nonetheless, we still need those little guys to come into leadership. And so continue to reach out to people uh, and especially the children and to young men who need to hear the gospel. Now, just a word about Golden Gate. Uh, Golden Gate Seminary is one of the six seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, There are some distinctives about us. First, where we're located. Our primary campus is in San Francisco, California. Uh, But we also operate fully accredited degree-granting campuses in Los Angeles, Phoenix, Denver, and Portland. And that is a five-campus seminary system. You say, why do you do it that way? Because the West is a big place. And we're responsible for delivering training across the West. If you got in a car and drove and visited all of our campuses and arrived back at the primary campus, you'd cover about 3,600 miles. If you got in a car and visited the other five seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention, you'd drive less mileage than that. That gives you an idea of how much territory we're responsible to cover. So uh, we do that across the West, and we've been doing it for about 70 years. And to your surprise, uh, you may think of Golden Gate Seminary as the small seminary out west, but this, this year we'll have uh, just a little over 2,000 students enrolled in our seminary, which makes us one of the 10 largest seminaries uh, in the United States and therefore in the world. Uh, Golden Gate has a couple of other distinctives. Uh, we've also been called the most multicultural seminary in the world. Only about 45% of our students are Anglo. And the other 55% come from the nations and peoples and ethnicities of the world. Uh, It's not unusual in our classes to have seven or eight different languages spoken by the students who come into a classroom. 
And so because of all of these factors, uh, Golden Gate has had a long reputation of being a missions seminary, and we are. But not only are we a missionary sending seminary, but we like to think of ourselves as a mission sent seminary. Placed in the West with a unique strategy, with a unique student body, and having seen us rise up to 2,000 or more students with a strength that makes us the second largest seminary in the western half of the United States. And I want to thank you this morning for helping us become that. Because there are not enough Baptists and certainly not enough Southern Baptists in the West to grow a seminary of this size. But by the Southern Baptist Convention's cooperative program, uh, churches like yours have a means of giving to help us be strong. And then through your prayers, and then as Pastor said, uh, from occasionally sending us students, even from your church, it's made us a stronger and more healthy seminary. So thanks for what you've done for us over the years. Now, Acts chapter 11. This morning, I'm going to be preaching about what it means to be a a generous church. And in order to do that, I want to introduce you to the model of the church in the New Testament. I think the most significant church in the New Testament, and that is a church at a city in a city called Antioch. This church is significant because it was the church from which the missionary movement of the first century world was launched, and that has cascaded down even to our day. So the story of the church at Antioch, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 11. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, this portion of the scripture is the story of the founding and early development of the church. Now, these next two stories tell us about two worship services that occurred in this church and tell us about points in the history of the church where we changed forever. The first description of the worship service is this. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now drop down to chapter 13, verse 1. For the continuation of the story and the description of a second worship service in in Antioch. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. 
Now, this church at Antioch is significant because it is a church that models generosity, but generosity for the purpose of getting the gospel to the whole world. Now, before we look at these two worship services and what they teach us about being a generous church, uh, let me remind you of the first part of the scripture reading and the founding and early development of the church because it reveals the passion that was interwoven in the life of this church for reaching people with the gospel. First, we see the passion demonstrated in these anonymous men who arrived and started preaching to Jews first, but then, oh, then they started preaching to the Gentiles or the Greeks. Now, you're reading that and you're really quite, quite frankly bored by it. You wonder, so? Well, here's the so. The gospel started in Jerusalem. And Jesus said in Acts 1.8, take the gospel and go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And most folk in churches like yours believe that, of course, the church obeyed Jesus. But what you may not realize is that, is that Acts chapters 3 up till this point in chapter 11, is actually the story of the church's failure to fulfill what Jesus told them to do. For you see, the first 8 to 10 years of the life of the early church, the church remained a Jewish-centric movement. The gospel was preached only among the Jews. And in fact, uh, when it although it occasionally leaked out to a non-Jew like the Ethiopian eunuch, there was no movement of the gospel beyond the Jewish community. And in fact, when it started that others wanted to become Christians, there was an issue in the church over circumcision, meaning that a person had to first become a Jew before they could become a Christian. This is what was going on in the early church until Antioch. And then the Bible says, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, started preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, meaning that everyone now was hearing they could come to faith in Christ, not by first becoming a Jew through circumcision, but just by coming to Christ. Anonymous men, when you get to heaven, look them up. Because if they had not done this courageous act, you would not be sitting here this morning. So this church started with men who had a passion for getting the gospel to everyone. And then that continued. They brought Barnabas down from Jerusalem. Or actually, Barnabas was sent down from Jerusalem. And he started leading the church. And the Bible says great numbers of people kept coming to faith in Christ. So under the first pastoral leader, more people came to faith. And then Barnabas left and fetched Saul. We know him as Paul. He brought him to Antioch. And it says they started a teaching ministry. And the Bible again says that large numbers of people were coming because of the teaching ministry. And then Last of all, it's tucked away in the last phrase of the first section. These disciples, these Christians, were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, that's an interesting title, Christians. We hear it frequently in our world. But the first time it was used, uh, many scholars and commentators think it was actually a term of ridicule or derision. Hung on the early believers because all they could talk about everywhere they went, whether it was the marketplace, whether it was the workplace, whether it was the recreation place, it was the Christ, the Christ, the Christ, the Christ. And so people said, oh, here come the Christ ones or the Christians. Wouldn't it be nice if we were so known for our faith that people had to put a nickname on us because we talked about the Lord so often. So with this foundation in mind, Understand that the church at Antioch had a, it was a model of and had a passion for getting the gospel to everyone. We see that in how the church started, 
and how the church was led by its first pastoral team and how the church had its reputation in the community for what it talked about all the time. Now, with that background in mind, let's look at these two worship services this morning and learn more specifically what it means to be a generous church that makes a difference. The first story. The church gathered for worship, and Agabus, a guest preacher, a lot like me perhaps, shows up from Jerusalem and preaches, and here's his message. Famine is coming, and the church in Jerusalem needs your help. And the Bible says that each person in the church of Antioch, according to his ability or in proportion to his ability, gave an offering and sent it back to Jerusalem to help another church. Now, here's what you're thinking. I knew it. He's going to ask me for money for his school. This is all about him preaching about money. Well, I'm about to preach about money, so hang on to your wallet. But I am not going to ask you for one thin dime for my school. In fact, I want to say this morning, I don't want you to even think about it. That's not why I'm here. I don't want the money. That gives me great freedom. Because now I can talk about money because I don't have any skin in the game, right? It's not about me. But I do want to talk with you about what this story teaches you about your church. Now, here's the background of what was happening. Remember, I told you the Jerusalem church had had the gospel for almost a decade. And when the Antioch church started in the gospel, what happened? The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas. Not as an encourager, which he later became famous for, but as an inquisitor to go down there to Antioch and find out if this thing was for real or not. And if it was for real, to perhaps bless it, but more more likely to find out it was not for real, that these people needed to become Jews first, then they might could become Christians. Barnabas surveys the situation and decided the movement was of God and blessed it and helped it grow. Now, the Jerusalem church had the gospel for almost a decade. When someone else received it, they were suspicious and sent an inquisitor down to check them out and perhaps put a stop to this nonsense of people coming to Christ without first becoming Jews. And in the context of that kind of tension, which, oh, by the way, did not go away very quickly. I don't have time to preach about it this morning, but if you want to read it later today, turn to Acts 15. And you can see the ongoing conflict between these two churches about the nature of the gospel, which resulted in, what was some, in something called the Jerusalem Council, whereby the nature of the gospel had to be decided for all time. These churches were in open, marked, uh, significant difference and conflict with one another. And the Jerusalem church asked them for an offering. Okay, you are not getting this. Let me back up and try again. Suppose Kevin called me at Golden Gate and said, Hey, uh, uh, Jeff, would you come to our church and, and preach a message and tell us about your, the work at Golden Gate and, and, ins- and inspire and challenge our church from the Word of God? And I said, Really? I mean, seriously? You want me to come all the way from San Francisco? Spend all the money? Do all the work to come to your church? I mean, you're a good church, but you're not like a mega church. And you're Abilene? You're not like Atlanta. You want me to come here? I don't think so. 
And he announced this to all of you. <sighs> this is made up story now. You know that, right? Okay. And then our, church, our seminary gets in a little financial trouble. Now, with an idiot president like I just described, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Okay, I get that. But we get in a little financial trouble. So what do I do? I call you. And I say, Kevin, can I come to your church? And can I preach? And can I ask for an offering? And he said, sure, come on. And I come in and I say, hey, everybody. Remember how I treated you in the past? Well, let's put that aside right now because really, quite frankly, we're in a little trouble out at my place and we'd like to, to have an offering. What would you say? You'd probably say, here's 50 cents. Enjoy the flight home. You abused us. You embarrassed our pastor. You, call, you, you said we were too small to come. You said we were insignificant. And now you come ask us for an offering? Yeah, that's exactly what happened at Antioch. Except it was a lot more serious because it was over the gospel that they were in conflict. But here's what happened with those Antioch Christians. They heard Agabus preaching, and this is what went through their minds. These people have abused us and tried to keep the gospel from us and sent a person down here to investigate us. But there's hungry Christians in Jerusalem. Let's get up an offering. And the Bible says, if you read carefully, that each Christian, in proportion to what they had, rose up and gave that offering and sent it in the care of the leaders back to Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean for you this morning? Well, let me get real specific. First, it means as a generous church, you are going to give money to people and to need that has nothing to do with you getting anything out of it ever again. Can I talk to the 55 and older crowd here just for a minute? I just joined that crowd this year. I am a senior adult. At Denny's and McDonald's both told me this. I can go there and get the discount. So let me talk to the 55 and older crowd right here for a minute. Let's be honest. We make the most money we're ever going to make in our lives. However much that is, we're making it. And we're challenged by our church, at least I'm challenged by my church, constantly to give my money away. And it always has to do with something that never benefits me. They want me to give, as you're doing, to remodel a preschool. Man, I am way past the preschool years. You follow what I'm saying? They want me to give to send people on mission trips. Well, I, I'm still young enough I'll go on a mission trip occasionally, but they want me to send a lot of people and especially a lot of young people on mission trips. And most of the giving I'm asked to do has very little to do with me getting anything in return. But I want to be like these believers at Antioch. I want to rise up and meet need because in a proportion of what I have, I want to give it. Not that I get anything out of it, but what? So that other people who are coming along after me can have the opportunities I've had. And now I want to talk to all the rest of you as a church as well. You say, well, we've got so many needs right here in Abilene. Why, why should we give our money here, give our money there? I'm telling you, you do it because it's the right thing to do to meet the needs of people who are struggling in places far from you, who have deep need, 
beyond what you can even imagine if you've never seen it with your own eyes. Generous churches rise up with their money. Individual members and churches as a whole saying, we are going to meet the needs of others financially, even though they have maybe even attacked us, even though there's nothing in it for us, even though it's a long way away, even though we may not get anything out of it, even though we have a lot of needs in our own lives or a lot of needs in our own church, we're going to give the money away anyway because there are hungry people out there who don't yet have the gospel or who don't have their human needs met and we are going to take care of it and we're going to do it right here. Now the second story. It's a totally different situation. They're still having a worship service, a different one. When the Holy Spirit intervenes and says, I want Paul and Barnabas to go on a mission trip. Now have you ever wondered how this service was actually going? Now, we had a service here this morning. We're having one right now, singing, praying, scripture, you know all of that. Well, it says in this text, the Holy Spirit said. Now, I I have mused over this for a long time. I wrote a book on the church at Antioch, 250 pages, okay? And I still don't know exactly how this happened, even after studying it for years and years and years. But let me use my imagination, okay? Here's how it might have played out. We're singing. And the brother stops and says, does anyone have a, a testimony today or a word that they'd like to speak to the church? The fellow stands up and says, well, I, I've got a word. Paul and Barnabas, <clears throat> I think you fellows are supposed to go on a mission trip. Everybody looks at him and says, okay. Let's sing a little more. <laughs> Why would that be weird? Because there had never been a mission trip yet in the history of the church. First one ever, right here. So nobody knew what the guy was talking about. So they sing a little more. Stop and they say, would anyone else like to speak? The fellow gets up and says, well, I've got a word. I don't know what this guy over here is talking about because I don't even know what a mission trip is. But Paul and Barnabas, I think you guys are supposed to leave our church and go around the Mediterranean world to other towns like ours and start churches in every city. Now, what do you think Paul and Barnabas were feeling at this moment? I mean, if I were there and somebody got up and said, hey, Jeff, you're supposed to leave our church and go do something else. My first thought would be, what did I do wrong? (laughs) Why me? (laughs) How did I get singled out here? But nevertheless, that's exactly what ultimately happened. Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church at Antioch. And you can read the rest of the story of the book of Acts about Paul making not one, not two, but three separate mission trips specifically for the purpose of planting churches. And all those churches mentioned in the New Testament that received those uh, letters from him like Corinth and Rome and Galatia and Colossae and Ephesians. What is all that about? That's Paul writing letters back to all the churches that he started as he went out on mission trips supported by the church at Antioch. Now, the first worship service at Antioch illustrates giving our money away to meet to, to, on mission. But the second one illustrates giving away our people. That's what makes it so exciting to be here this morning. Because I know you've got trips planned for Uganda, uh, Beach Reach, Panama, uh, Thailand, Pastor, am I missing any? I don't know if I'm naming them all or not. But I'm hearing that you have dozens of people that you're sending out all over the world to make a difference with the gospel. That's what generous churches do. They give their people away. 
Now, it doesn't have to be quite this dramatic, by the way, although I'm delighted that, you're, that, you're glo- that your impact is global. Helping another church can be a lot more simple than this. In 1989, I moved to Portland, Oregon to plant a new church. And we only had four families that started the church. We met in a middle school gymnasium. And there was a little church down the street, uh, not down the street, excuse me. There's a little church uh, 15, 20 minutes down the road, actually. Small Southern Baptist church, maybe 50, 7,500 people. Good church, though. I'm small but healthy and vibrant and, you know, trying to do the right thing. And they came to me and said, how can we help you get started? And I thought, this little church is going to help us get started. How are they going to do that? Well, they had a decent music program in their church for such a small church. And so I said to the pastor, I'll tell you what, do you, do you ever have anybody in your church stand up and like sing a solo or anything like that? He goes, well, yeah, actually we do. We have people from time to time that do that. In fact, almost every Sunday. I said, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll ask you to do. You have somebody singing your church on a Sunday. And if you'll ask that person the following Sunday to come to my church and sing the, sing the same song, no extra preparation, no extra money spent, no extra anything except their time, just send them the next Sunday to my church. It'll help us to build a stronger program. It'll make us look better than we really are as people start visiting our church and wondering what this new church is all about. It will strengthen us if you'll just do that one thing for us. He said, man, we're, we're in. We will do it. And for the next couple of years... Almost every Sunday, this church sent us a singer or sent us a duet or sing us a quartet, sent us somebody, and they would sing in our worship service and help our worship team to do a better job. Are you tracking with me here? It's as simple as saying, there's a church down the street that doesn't have enough people to have a decent vacation Bible school. We're going to send a team from our church. We've already done VBS. We don't have to do any more preparation. It won't cost us any more money. Just two weeks after we finish ours, and we've all had a week to recover, then we get our materials together and we go down there and help them do a vacation Bible school. Are you tracking with me here? Generous churches give their people away. Now, why is this so significant? Because Jesus said this. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you'll lose it. And there is a spiritual principle at work personally and corporately, and the principle is this. If you want to find life, if you want to find vitality, if you want to find strength, you will not find those things by holding on to what you have. How many times I've heard it said in church, well, we don't need to do all this mission work till we take care of things right here at home. Completely wrong. The Bible says, first, you take care of everyone else that you have the possibility of trying to, the possibility of, of, uh, of, of impacting. And then the Bible says, Jesus Christ himself will replenish what you have given away even more than you could have ever had in the first place. Jesus said, give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, using an agricultural metaphor. Jesus said, You want to find life? Lose it. You want to have more? Give what you have away. Again, in 1989, when we planted the church, we made some early decisions that have had a profound impact. First, we decided when we planted our church that we were going to be financially generous from the very beginning. Now, how close was it at the beginning? Well, We had a little bit of funding to help plan our church, and we had the offerings from our few people. On the last Wednesday night of every month, I would meet with our church treasurer, and we'd pay the bills for the month. 
And on multiple occasions, I had to write my tithe check and turn it in early so the paycheck he was giving me would not be a hot check. That's how close it was for us financially. Our church opened in October 1989. We started meeting the summer before. We gave our first missions gifts, not in October when we opened the church, but in August, two months before. Our church adopted a budget. We didn't have a lot, but we knew we needed the plan to spend what we had wisely. And so we adopted a budget and said, for the first year of our church, we're going to give away 10% of all of our tithes and offerings. We're going to give away 10% to missions outside our church. We did that through the cooperative program, through some giving to our local association, and through some additional giving for church planting in our area. 10%. That was in the first. That was in October, August before we opened in October. We opened in October, and the following June, we took our first mission trip. You say, wow, but that was dramatic. Not really. It was me and three or four adults and about six or eight teenagers getting in a van and driving across the state of Oregon up through Washington to a place called Lewiston, Idaho, where we did did backyard Bible clubs and survey work to help start the Tammany View Baptist Church, which is today one of the strongest churches in the Northwest Baptist Convention and a great church under the same pastor that was there when we helped start that church many years ago. But nevertheless, we went there in June when our church wasn't even yet one year old. And gave our people away and said, we're going to go somewhere else with people to make a difference. And we're going to do that so that we can see God, so so that we can demonstrate that we're a generous church from the very beginning. That was 24 years ago. Today, that church will have about 700 people in worship service, a budget of around a million dollars. It'll be giving far more than 10% of its income away this year, far more than 10% of its income away to missions. And it has more mission partnerships than I can imagine. They're planting two churches in the greater Portland area right now. Plus, they have formal partnerships in China and India and Africa where the church is sending people every year on multiple, team, multiple trips to facilitate the work that's going on in these continuing partnerships. And out of this church are coming young people who are giving their lives to missions and ministry service in all kinds of ways uh, that we train and send out and work with all over the world. You say, well, that's because you got to be a big church. You could do these things. That is exactly backwards. We got to be a big influential missions giving church because of what? The very beginning when we had nothing, we gave away our people and we gave away our money. And God took over and poured in the blessing. Just one example. After our church had been been in business for about three years, a couple came to visit one Sunday with with their daughter. And uh, he had on, you know, jeans, work shirt, lace-up boots, you know, just that kind of guy. They came a few Sundays, and I got to know him a little bit. Then he said, I want to come by and visit you in your office. And he came in, he said, hey, listen, we, we actually became Christians in a Southern Baptist church about eight, ten years ago. And, and there were some issues in the church, some problems, and we, we ultimately left. And we went over here to another church. But honestly, I don't really like it there because they don't have a decent missions emphasis. 
They really don't believe in the gospel going to the whole world. They talk about it, but they don't really believe it. And frankly, I like what you're doing. You just started out, you're only a couple years old, and I can, but I can see what you're going to be and what, what your heart is. And, and I just want you to know that we're, we're going to come and join your church. And I said, we'd love to have you, man. That's great. And so he, he and his wife came and joined. And, and then I found out that he may be the wealthiest person that I've ever known. And then it came time for our church to build its campus. Ten years after we started, we finally built our first building. And his seven-figure gifts, gifts, made the difference. And the property the church is on, someone came to us and said, I'd like to give you a small piece of property. And we said, it's too small. This fellow found out about it. And he came to see me and the pastor, and he said, hey, guys, I need to tell you something. I own all the property around that little piece of property. I've just been holding it for years, thinking if that little church ever took off, I'd give it to them. But if that little church is going to sell you their property, I'll give you all the property around it. I'll just give it to you. Are you tracking with me here? <laughs> I'm telling you that when you as a church decide to be generous, to give what you have away both financially and personally to meet the needs of others and to get the gospel to people who don't have access to it. I'm telling you that God looks out of heaven and says, let's pour out blessing until there's no more need and make that church stronger than it's ever imagined. Now the good news here today is I have not come by to try to jumpstart a dead car. I have come by to try to add fuel to a roaring machine. <laughs> you guys are already doing the right things. What I want to say this morning is don't be discouraged, don't back up, and don't get selfish. Recognize that as you continue to give yourselves away, God is going to do through you and with you more than you could have ever imagined.